Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's guest invites us to focus our attention on a theme that is central to the development of all companies and professionals, customer service, or rather, the overall experience we offer customers. We live in the era of experience, and against a growing number of chatbots and automated systems, we paradoxically expect businesses to invest more and more in human traits such as listening, willingness, and values. So what has customer service become today? How should companies get ready for this if they do not want to be caught unawares? Serve with Style is today's show and raises vital questions for every market player. It offers a specific path to help develop methods of organization and professional skills which are becoming increasingly priceless in today's business world and will be essential tomorrow. We welcome author of Serve with Style, Carlo Pignataro. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Aidan. It's great to be back. Carlo, it's been three years since you first appeared on the show. Since then, you look younger. You've opened an office here in Ireland. Your coaching and your consulting work has exploded. But what was your motivation to write another book after your first book, Sell With Style? I'm delighted to be on the show, Aidan. I'm a loyal listener, and I'm truly excited to be here with you today. I'm not sure I look younger, though. <laughs> it's a good filter on your Instagram, man. <laughs> well, it may be, yes. You know how to flatter you guys. But I certainly feel rejuvenated, uh, and I credit most of it uh, to meditation, which I started practicing uh, uh, twice a day, less than a year ago. And I would say to my happy and ever-changing relationship with my wife, my love of 15 years, uh, who gives me the inspiration and the peace of mind to pursue my projects, uh, including my books. My motivation to write Serve with Style comes from always having looked at sales and service as two sides of the same coin. And so after writing Sell with Style, it felt natural to me to focus on on customer service. Also, I felt the urge to raise awareness within the, the customer service community of the major changes at the service level triggered by technology and taking place uh, in uh, many industries, uh, which I've noticed uh, many associates uh, don't see coming. Yeah, and it's just like disruption in businesses. People are not seeing it coming, and it's happened already. It's like William Gibson said, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. For the listener, we're going to focus on the changing world of service and sales in this world of technology, but also the increasing need for human skills. And you mentioned there your wife, and one of the things you do is really focus on your language, Carlo, your word choice. And there's a great saying, which is words create worlds, and the right choice of word can impact behavior. So we should choose our words very, very carefully. And you employ this way of thinking in every aspect of your life, at home, with the family, but also in your sessions and dealing with clients yourself. Look, I agree with you. And it occurs to me that uh, neuroscience has clearly demonstrated that the words we use to describe our experience of the world uh, inevitably shape our worldview. And so when we consciously choose to enrich our vocabulary with words that convey a sense of well-being, harmony, peace and beauty, with time we remodel our perception, our behavior, and ultimately our personality and the people around us uh, will inevitably benefit from it. One of the things that really struck me was from a family perspective. So the language we use at home, oftentimes 
we neglect people closest to us. And they're the people we're actually working for. We're actually working to have financial freedom in order to spend more time with our family and friends, etc. But I'm always struck by how some people will treat a total stranger on the phone much better than they will their own partner, their wife, their husband, maybe even their mother or father. And the language we use to them becomes extremely important as well. You see, words are important, Aidan. If you think about it, with a compliment, uh, you can make somebody's day. With words of encouragement, uh, you can make a child grow into a confident adult. Uh, but words can also do harm and be misunderstood. In the luxury industry, there is always a finer way to say something. And so, rather than say yes uh, to a client, uh, I say my pleasure. A shop becomes a boutique, and a factory becomes a workshop. A word like lovely is better than nice, and gorgeous is better than lovely. And choosing words and sentences that convey a certain finesse and care and dedication is beneficial at all levels and to everyone involved. I have hugely benefited from this verbal style in my private life too, not just business. And I can assure you that it's always a great experience after a trip, for example, to go back to a house where you were welcomed with words of love and appreciation. So this brings us to the word luxury itself, because this is a word that many people misinterpret. I'd love if you shared what your interpretation of luxury is. You see, in my previous book, Sell With Style, I had defined luxury as the celebration of individuality, saying that uh, the interpretation of the word luxury is necessarily subjective. Uh, what is luxurious to me, for example, may be a commodity for you and vice versa. And so I proposed that the ability to make someone, a client in our case, feel good about themselves and, and about the interaction would be a good starting point to offer them a luxury experience. In this new book, I have used luxury as a context, as a frame, if you will, and a frame which, by the way, is getting larger and larger in today's world. Since a, a growing number of individuals all over the world have reached a stage where their basic needs are met and they've moved up the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So, we can reasonably say that whatever your industry, you are likely to deal with clients who are more demanding and sophisticated than before and who expect to feel good about the interaction. And, the, and this is where the luxury context comes in handy even to people who do not operate within the luxury industry. And you recommend we all add a bit of luxury to our proposition, no matter what industry we're working in. And you give us some simple ways we can do that. I'd love if you'd share some of these. I do, I do. I, I, I always recommend businesses and people I consult or just talk to, to try and add a touch of elegance to the way they do, they do business. Elegance? Uh, in the words of uh, philosopher, the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, is uh, that behavioral quality that transforms a person's uh, highest essence uh, into appearance. And so it's all about letting the best of you emerge every day. And uh, every day in your relationship with your clients and your stakeholders, uh, from the way you speak to the way you dress, from always being on time and respectful of other people's opinions and points of view, to taking, to taking care of uh, every little detail in the interaction between your business and your clients. You've asked uh, for a few examples. 
Let's say, for example, that uh, you are about to meet a, a prospect, uh, a prospective client in your office. Well, you can just make sure your office looks at its best. You can buy fresh flowers, offer them the finest uh, Swiss chocolate, make sure that everyone is dressed for the occasion. Or you can just display all your achievements uh, and credentials uh, on the office walls uh, so your, your customer know who they're talking to even before you speak. Uh, you can also improve your business cards, uh, the packaging of your products, uh, the graphic design of your brochures, and even invoices. Uh, the hold-on music people have to listen to when they call you, not to mention the waiting time. The thing is, there are literally no limits to the amount of details uh, one can take care of. Uh, and the more effective and polished one becomes, uh, the more luxurious uh, they will be perceived. So these are the physical attributes of yourself or your business, for example. But let's now shift towards the mental attributes. So we talked in the introduction about how human qualities become more and more important, but also so does introspection, so does self-awareness, holistic thinking, for example. And Plato once said, the right question is usually more important than the right answer. And you use this quote in the book to introduce the importance of questions. And indeed, this is your starting point for the book itself. I do agree, Aidan, and uh, that, uh, that uh, quote uh, of uh, Plato who said that the right question is usually more important than the right answer is, uh, I, uh, is something I live by, and, and I owe it to my love of philosophy and to my desire uh, to always look for the truth in everything I do rather than just uh, a convenient answer. When it comes to, to, to biases, uh, you see, uh, all my books are written in line with my corporate education business, and they aim at providing readers uh, with an opportunity to learn new skills uh, rather than only gathering information. And, uh, and when it comes to learning, biases uh, always get in the way. The confirmation bias, uh, which is that uh, thinking habit uh, that makes a person subconsciously look only for the pieces of information that confirm their existing ideas and opinions, uh, opinions uh, is a great limit to, ever, to overcome if someone really wishes to learn something or learn a new skill for that matter. You devote a lot of both books to bias and understanding them so we're aware of what the blockers are to our self-development. But you do some exercises at the end of each chapter and... Let's do one of those exercises now. So let's ask our audience, as you do in the book, to think about someone who is free of assumptions, prejudice, and bias. I'd love if you took us through this. Sure, with pleasure. I'm, I would actually propose an exercise or a little moment of reflection to our listeners today. And uh, because I think this is a good start, uh, since uh, human beings learn, it, at least at the beginning of their life as children, uh, by imitation. So I would like to invite uh, our listeners today to think of someone they know who's particularly good at uh, listening without prejudice, uh, someone wise enough to say they're sorry and to change their mind. We all know someone like this, or at least uh, someone who was open-minded enough to change on a certain occasion. So my proposal now is to focus on the image of this person for a few seconds. You can now try and make this image vivid in your mind. Now, the next time you are called to make a decision, I would like you to ask yourself whether you are free from your confirmation bias and if you are behaving like the person you have just visualized. I promise it will work.
it influences how we actually think because we use that person. I, I think Napoleon Hill used to do this. He used to have this kind of jury of people that he'd think of and he'd ask questions to, and then he'd absorb some of their thinking as well. I love that idea. Absolutely. They become sort of role models, if you will. Mental role yeah, models. Yeah, nice. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, actually. And thanks for bringing it to life from the book. So back to the importance of questions. You ask us to consider our biases because that will not only influence the question we ask, but also how we answer and indeed how we perceive the answer or the feedback, for example, from a customer. Oftentimes, we don't want to let in chinks in the armor for ourselves. We don't want to let in weaknesses. And ultimately, you ask us to consider the question, what is service itself? Absolutely. That's utterly important to me. How can you perform consistently well at a task you may not be able to, you may not even be able to define? So in the book, I have borrowed Ron Kaufman's definition of service as an action which creates value for someone else. And I think it makes sense. Because when you focus on value creation, you finally give the word service the importance and the dignity it deserves. And presently, I have reached a point uh, in my life and in my career in which I think that everything is, is, is service. Everything is about creating value for somebody else. And, and if you read the first lines of the 2020 Davos Manifesto, available in the World Economic Forum's website, uh, it reads, I have it here, the purpose of a company is to engage all its stakeholders in shared and sustained value creation. In creating such value, a company serves not only its shareholders, but also its stakeholders, employees, customers, suppliers, local communities, and society at large. The best way to understand and harmonize the divergent interests of all stakeholders is through a shared commitment to policies and decisions that strengthen the long-term prosperity of a company. So to me, service is a very modern concept. Joe Pine, the father of the experience economy, you guys shared the stage here in Dublin. And you mentioned the experience economy and the importance of staging experiences. And it's a very important factor in this world of the experience economy and one that is not always in our control. But when it is, you emphasize how we must pay attention to every small detail. And you do this even with your workshops, for example. Well, I certainly try to because uh, the speaking and training industry we are in Aiden is, is a wonderful, beautiful, but not necessarily easy one, is it? And so when speaking at a conference, uh, perhaps following other speakers on stage uh, or running a corporate workshop, uh, we, we rarely have full control over the event and we are at risk of being commoditized. For this reason, I try as much as I possibly can to own the time I, I spend with, the, with an audience and give them something to remember. For example, if I run a public course, as, as sometimes I do in Europe, where I have full control of the event, I choose a luxury hotel in line with my positioning, provide participants with uh, lunch and refreshments uh, to, so to make sure that they have a luxury experience throughout the event, and I hire support staff dressed and trained to convey the same finesse I like to convey. But if I don't control the event, well, I still try to differentiate my presence. Sometimes, before getting on stage, I project an opening sequence with music and images put together to trigger emotions. Whenever possible, 
I always try and ensure that people in the audience get access to my books, uh, so to have a physical and intellectual experience, uh, and so forth. It's not always easy, I have to say, but uh, trying to enhance the experience is certainly worth trying, because I salute uh, Joe's ability to predict the future when he published his book, uh, The Experience Economy, in 1998, and we can certainly say that uh, we are living today in the experience economy, an economic phase in which consumers attribute more value to experience than goods and services. Let's move on from there. So up until now, we've been talking about the experience economy and the importance of language and words and even adding a bit of luxury to our proposition. That tees us up nicely for this idea that AI, artificial intelligence, even technology of any sort, is changing the world of sales and service itself. And there's a quote by science fiction writer Isaac Asimov, and he says, the lucky few who can be involved in creative work of any sort will be the true elite of mankind, for they alone will do more than serve a machine. And you devote a whole chapter to the impact of technology. You explore everything from chatbots to AI to humograms, And rather than diving into specifics of each of those, I'd love to hear how you feel technology impacts service for good and for bad. And you give the example of a client of yours, which is Essilor Luxottica. Indeed. Essilor Luxottica, uh, which happens to be the largest manufacturer of eyewear in the world, with incredible house brands like uh, uh, Ray-Ban and Oakley, and licensed brands uh, ranging from uh, Prada to Bulgari, from Tiffany to Dolce & Gabbana, and, and many more, is a company that has embraced technology in every aspect of business, sales and customer service included. Their retailers and distributors today can place their orders in interact- interactive spaces where augmented reality gives them an immersive experience. For example, if they are ordering the latest, um, I don't know, Prada, Prada collection, uh, the four walls around them which are screens, uh, will start projecting images of Prada stores, uh, catwalk, uh, advertising campaigns, uh, red carpet, and so forth. The spectacles will be projected in 3D, and the buyer can watch herself uh, wear them in a virtual mirror. Not only is the experience highly immersive, but also extremely informative. Because the algorithm controlling the experience makes every piece of information related to each item item available in real time. And there is literally no limit to the amount of information the buyer can have access to, from features of the item to past collections and from sales data to market trends. And what's scary is that it all happens in real time and virtually without the need for a salesperson or a customer service associate. We talked earlier on about questions, Carlo, and there's a question that you pose to everyone. It's in the backdrop of this idea of technology and how it's changing the world of service. And you say, I am firmly convinced that tasks which give meaning to experience will remain the exclusive prerogative of humans. And you caution that if we want to avoid sinking in the future, we should start reflecting honestly on our current and potential contribution to serving our customers. And it reminded me of a quote by Maya Angelou, who said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And that's a very unique human emotion, because computers and AI are logical. Absolutely, Aidan. That's the point. Machines are very efficient. 
they have become somewhat human, but they're not human yet. And I hope they never will be. Uh, human beings have feelings, and feelings can change everything in a split second. Not to say that feelings cannot be anticipated, but when it comes to making people feel heard, listened to, taken care of, and important, human wants their uh, peers to help them. And those peers are not machines, but uh, rather other human beings they respect and have a good opinion of. And for this reason, it's utterly important that, number one, sales associates don't behave like machines, saying something like, it's company policy. And number two, that they earn the respect of their clients, and hence they have to be credible, knowledgeable, possibly charismatic, and never too submissive. So this raises this idea that you talk about as well, that the future job market will need fewer ordinary employees, so those ones who are maybe task-driven, and more cultured people. And your culture comes across, and your cross-disciplines, and your interest in philosophy, in humanity, etc., comes across. But you really feel this is what's necessary for the business of tomorrow, but also for the sales associate or the service associate of tomorrow. This is actually the reason I wrote this book. I am sure that uh, many people in sales, uh, customer service, uh, and many other areas of business uh, will be made redundant. Uh, and because they don't see it coming, they're not doing anything about it. I'm firmly convinced that to retain a job in sales and customer service, a person will have to be able to make the interaction with the client memorable and, most importantly, meaningful. And you don't make an interaction meaningful only with product knowledge or speaking about the history of your company. You need to have more weapons, more topics to discuss in order to maximize your chances to connect with another human being at a deeper level, which provides meaning. And so, yes, being more generalists helps. One of the things, though, that you need to do that is permission from on top. So the whole organization needs to change to empower people to make decisions so they're not acting like computers, because many of us know what it's like to call up a call line that you have a problem with your service provider and you can f hear the person clicking on the computer in the background and the computer often says no and computer will say no in the future if you don't skill up for example but also if the organization doesn't change and you talked in particular about empowering people and i thought of this and i thought of a friend of mine who worked as a hotel manager in los angeles and he told me they had a discretionary budget to make the stay of the guest extra special, to make it memorable. And you advise us that we need to empower our people to do the same. You say we should upgrade the level of service we offer customers. To achieve this, we need customer service associates capable of managing everything that technology, particularly AI, cannot manage. But to do that, they need the power to make decisions on the fly. They do. And you got to give them three things you got to give them trust. They need to feel that they're backed up by the organizations and their management. you got to give them the power to act. And you have to skill them up. Because not everybody is trained to make decisions on the spot. Not everybody is trained to solve problems. So you need to give them the technical ability to do so. And the way I see it, and based on my research, that's the future of customer service. Fewer people, more entitled, uh, and more effective. Here you tell us there's three areas where automation is really limited. Unexpected events, spirituality, which is an interesting one, 
and inviting verbalization. I'd love if you clarified what these meant. All right, let, let me start from uh, spirituality, because I think it's probably the most uh, controversial one. One may wonder, why would I need a customer service associate <laughs> to enter the realm, the, the realm of... Uh, Give me the robot, bug. <laughs> Give me the robot. <laughs> That's the thing. But I think that uh, everyone nowadays is looking for something higher than just uh, a business interaction. It's at every level, not necessarily when at the B2C level, but also at the, B, at the B2B level. We, we really want to make sure that we buy from the right people, from those who are motivated by a higher purpose. And this is a spirit, spiritual value, if you will. So we really need to make sure that uh, uh, our associates uh, speak uh, the higher language of a business. So if we choose, uh, as many leaders are doing today, because the Davos Manifesto I read uh, a few minutes ago has been uh, signed by many business leaders, I think of the, of the nice book that the, the CEO of, uh, of Salesforce has written titled uh, uh, Trailblazer, Mark Benioff, in which he, he speaks about uh, focusing more on, on uh, stakeholder value rather than shareholder value. So these are philosophical and spiritual moves uh, that uh, companies and the business world is taking, and uh, we cannot afford to leave our frontliners, our customer-facing people. We cannot leave them out. Um, unpredictable events. Well, unpredictable events uh, is where human beings should excel. Uh, anything can happen in the relationship with, between a business and a client, and you want to make sure that when something happens, uh, not only the problems arising or the opportunity for, for that matter is being managed, uh, but the client also feels reassured. So they need to know that when something is going wrong or something is changing, there's a human being out there ready to help them and to make them feel listened to and taken care of. Inviting verbalization is uh, utterly important. In my 25 years uh, sales and customer service experience, uh, I've really noticed that the most powerful sales tool is called active listening, which is the ability to make a speaker, a client in our case, but somebody feel deeply understood. Mm. Because when people speak, they unleash their needs, they enter into their comfort zone, they express themselves. So when you give them the opportunity to speak up, to express themselves, and only a human being can do that, uh, because would you speak to a machine? And then you're really giving them the opportunity to 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 uh, evolve in the interaction with the business, which creates an experience. Uh, the more the experience is personable, the more is memorable. The more is memorable, the more becomes uh, uh, meaningful, and so forth. So I think those are the three aspects uh, where human beings can really focus and make a difference uh, in the relationship with their clients uh, today and in the future. Yeah, and you mentioned there listening because you talk a lot about this in Selwood style and active listening in particular. But there's still many sales organizations out there who have a Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross approach to sales, like it's hard, it's about the numbers, it's like push that person to buy. But we live in a world that's vastly different than even 10 years ago, let alone 30 or 40. And people need to come to the conclusion of the sale themselves for therefore listening to them and making sure they're understood is absolutely key. Because they're going to do their research on websites, etc. They're going to do research before they even get to you. And this is where this idea of verbalization and listening to the customer becomes ultra important. Indeed. Indeed. I always say, especially at the B2C level, uh, let's say the automotive industry, for example, that your job as a salesperson today is no longer to convince customers, but to reassure them. Because they have done their research. 
They know everything they need to know. They're just looking for confirmation. So, yeah, I mean, when, when we listen to people, it's a win-win. They express themselves, we gather information, and we can find the right match between, the, the, between their needs uh, and their products. I know music's a huge part of your life, Carlo, and you talked about improvisation, and here you contextualize improvisation through the example of John Coltrane. What I loved about this was we talk on this show a lot about creating the environment for change, for transformation, for innovation. So we had on Amy Edmondson recently talking about psychological safety, and very much that is the soil in which ideas can grow. And this brings us back to talking about the organization itself, because the organization needs to create the environment for a salesperson to improvise, to make a decision that's in the best interests of the customer, so the customer has the best possible service. I love this idea. Music is indeed a big part of my life, and the discipline that has first made me discover the magic of collaboration. And this is what an organization is about, isn't it? In fact, if you think about it, the music coming out of an ensemble, of a band, is, uh, when good in particular, is much richer than just the sum of the sound of each instrument. The John Coltrane analogy in the book is probably the most, uh, <laughs> one of the most abstract uh, concepts. But uh, as uh, the greatest contemporary Italian philosopher, uh, Emanuele Severino, uh, once said, the more abstract the concept, the more powerful it is. Mm, mathematics, for one, is the most abstract discipline, yet no business would function without it, right? But going back to John Coltrane, you know he was one of the greatest jazz musicians of all times, saxophone players, and, as you rightly said before, uh, improvisation is uh, probably one of the most important elements of, uh, of jazz music. But to be able to improvise, a musician uh, should have full command of their instrument and, uh, and also of music harmony. In other words, they should speak the language of music. And so when they improvise, they can create a new evolved language that other musicians can codify first and then learn and speak. And in my dreams and in my work as a corporate learning designer, I aim at creating an army of small Coltrane's, people who can take initiative, who can improvise, and at the same time create always new standards of service. I had a I had an image of uh, all the sales team coming in with a lot of saxophones. <laughs> like, oh, Carlo told us to do it. <laughs> we mentioned Sartre, we mentioned Ray Dalio, and the context of that is the collapse of organizational hierarchies. And we're seeing this, thankfully. And you say a business with a top-down hierarchy is now replaced with a group that works together on the basis of shared goals and follows a spiritual, technical, philosophical, and commercial path that allows them each to interpret the customer's needs accordingly. This becomes really important because the more complex the organization, the further away the sales rep is from the customer, from making a decision on the fly to make that customer's experience memorable. Absolutely, and that's why they're being replaced by machines. Um, those uh, working at the far end of the organization uh, and who do not contribute to it, uh, who are not involved in the decision-making process are left out. Uh, but more and more companies are now understanding that they need to work together as a group. Doors are now open today within organizations. And, uh, and what, I, what I realized, let me give you an example. 
in the old days, I'm not saying that this happened at the organizational levels, but uh, luxury, the luxury industry has always been a very desirable industry for, for employees. Uh, uh, working for certain companies and brands uh, has, had always been, has always been cool, so to speak. Um, nowadays, uh, more industries are experiencing the same, because uh, number one, because many other products and services have become cool with time, but also because companies have learned to make the workplace and the workspace uh, is a cool place uh, to be. And, and what I've noticed is that uh, when employees, uh, in our case, a customer-facing employees, could be sales reps, could be customer service associates, could be frontliners uh, in general, when they believe in their company, when they feel if working for, for the companies between brackets cool because they share the values, uh, well, it shows in the relationship with their clients. So you say here, you need to like the company you're working for, essentially, because if the organization is toxic or mechanistic, then you purely work for the paycheck, not for the organization. And that will come across to the customer. And if you don't care about the company, you won't care about the outcome of a negotiation, for example. And you say a good CEO or manager, for their part, should instill ownership in their employees, managing aspects that encourage company loyalty and a sense of pride to belonging to it. I thought about what you talked about negotiation, which you spend a lot of time on the book, that somebody's not going to really care and they're not going to go the extra mile. They're not going to give more of their discretionary effort to get the best outcome if ultimately they don't really care. You see, Aidan, negotiation in my study is one of those skills uh, that uh, customer-facing employees will need in the future to survive and strive in, the mar- in, a, in, a, in an ever-changing marketplace. Negotiation is one, and you certainly need to believe in what you're doing in your company, and you certainly need to understand uh, what's good and bad for your company in order to be able to negotiate with the customer. But negotiation is not the only one. In the book, I've mentioned leadership, I've mentioned general culture knowledge, I've I've mentioned problem-solving, psychology, communication. And uh, once uh, a reader told me, but it takes Superman <laughs> to work uh, in customer service based on your book. And to a certain extent, he was right. <laughs> the bar is high, Carlo. <laughs> the bar is high. But listen, when you put yourself in the shoes of a customer rather than the shoes of a, of a, of a service provider, you realize that you have less patience and less tolerance than before. You don't want to deal with a waiter who's never tasted the menu, would you? You don't want to deal with a salesman and wait for a salesman busy with another client to sell you a mobile phone. You're likely to to know more than him. Uh, You either want everything ready and automatic uh, or you want to deal with experts, uh, with people who can make decisions and make the experience memorable. In this respect, uh, you will see that all the disciplines uh, uh, I've mentioned before and and of which the book offers a a brief yet uh, practical learning path play a part in the construction of a new generation of customer-facing professionals and in a new way of harmonizing their presence within a company. You talked about there the Superman. So you ask a lot of the customer service rep, but your idea here is even if they do half of these things, they're going to be ahead of the rest. And one of the things you emphasize and you finish the book with is a chapter on beauty. And I like this chapter particularly because it echoes my own sentiments on how innovation in inverted commas happens because you create the environment we mentioned there earlier on, Amy Edmondson's idea of psychological safety. You allow innovation to come forth. You talked here about one of the bands you're a big fan of, which is U2, and how Bono, the lead singer and the main songwriter for U2, 
doesn't sit down to write a song and then expect that to happen. Instead, he creates the environment for the muse to sing to him and then writes the song when the time comes. Absolutely, and I'm a big fan of your countryman Bono. And who in the book Bono Bono says that he doesn't know when, the, when creativity will next knock at his door, but that by reading books, uh, listening to music, uh, visiting museums, etc., he does uh, all he can uh, to stumble into it. The luxury industry uh, offers several examples of beauty, for one, put at the center of their strategy. I'm thinking of the Fondation Louis Vuitton, one of the most important art galleries in the world. I'm also thinking of uh, La Fondazione Prada or Progetto Bellezza, Project Beauty of uh, Brunello Cucinelli. Also Steve Jobs was, uh, was uh, very sensitive to beauty. And, 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 and I think that to a certain extent, uh, Apple owes uh, its success to the aesthetic uh, value of, uh, of their products. And one of the heroes you talked about, and we talked before on the show with Francesca Gino, your countrywoman, in her book, Rebel Talent, was Adriano Olivetti. And that company, led by Olivetti, very much invested in beauty for their people because he knew it inspired them to give more of themselves. Absolutely. Adriano Olivetti left a library of uh, uh, over 1,600 books uh, to its employees. And in the end, uh, if you think about it, uh, beauty, beauty sells. Uh, beauty... Uh, speaks to the soul. Beauty makes an impression. I think beauty is one of those concepts uh, that can make entrepreneurs and top managers uh, look at things from a different perspective and perhaps uh, find innovation where they don't see it now. And hopefully you've had a beautiful experience here on the show, Carlo. Indeed. <laughs> we started the book talking about language and the importance of language, but you also end the book with the same sentiment and you emphasize the importance of a shared language within any organization. Yes. Uh, a, a group of people to understand each other uh, need to speak the same language. The same happens in a company, and if we want everyone to deliver excellent service, uh, we must ensure that they all share a common service language. For this reason, I have designed a scheme called the Five C's of Customer Service, uh, taking inspiration from the Four C's of Diamond, uh, carrot, uh, cut, color, and clarity, which, in its simplicity, uh, I think can really help a group of people work together to enhance the level of service they provide. And I invite our listeners to check it out in the book if they wish. Carlo, before I ask you where people can find out more about your work, your workshops, etc., two questions for you. The first is, if you were to leave somebody working in the sales or service industry with a thought or a notion or a question, what that is, and likewise for everybody else, because... This idea of being a bit more luxury, a bit more human, a bit more holistic applies to all of us in this world where technology and AI is becoming more and more pervasive. What are those thoughts you'd leave us with? Quite a question. <laughs> to the sales and customer service community, I'd say um, believe in yourself. And uh, to say it in the words of the late uh, Jim Rohn, work harder on yourself than you do on your job. Mm. So focus on your creativity, focus on your problem solving, focus on becoming the best person you can become because people will enjoy dealing with that very person. And to everybody else uh, and to anyone who's interested to take some inspiration from the luxury, good, to, from, the, to, from the luxury world, uh, I would say that there's a word in luxury that uh, we always focus on, which is, a, which is the word perfection.
Now, we all know that perfection is not human, but focusing on perception forces us uh, to give always our best. And in the process of trying our best, uh, we evolve. And then for people to find out more about your workshops, etc., where can they find you? Well, my website, www.carlopignataro.com, uh, and also LinkedIn, which is the social platform where I entertain uh, the most uh, valuable relationship uh, with my stakeholders. Author of Servo Style, Carlo Pignataro, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Aiden. 